What's up, everybody? I'm Omar Serrato, experienced and practicing attorney, fierce litigator, and unofficial commentator on the most popular legal issues of the day. I'm the host of the Tilted Lawyer podcast, joined by Eliana Clone Rosa and the TLP crew, where we break down the human aspects of law that everybody wants to talk about. I've been a practicing attorney for many years, but nothing in this show is or should be taken as legal advice. We're not going to pull any punches. We might even get a little bit dirty, but we want you to join us anyway. Good afternoon, everybody. I didn't realize we were live. I just pressed a button, and now uh, we are live for <clears throat> episode 26 of the Tilted Lawyer Podcast, and I am here broadcasting by myself here at Tilted Lawyer Podcast Studios in the Inland Empire. As uh, one of our new listeners pointed out, she says she's been living in the United States, but she had no idea that there was a place like the Inland Empire that existed, and yet it does. Uh, somewhere in between the middle of the desert and uh, the high desert and the mountains. So you kind of get the best of all uh, the earth has to offer. But it's a pleasure to be with you on a Friday evening as I am coming to you live. And I haven't done a full live episode of the Tilt Lawyer podcast since I went back and I did the math. It was about October. We stopped doing a live podcast because the quality was low and uh, we didn't really know what we were doing. Um, we've since corrected a lot of those issues, and um, even right now, I mean, as I'm trying to do this, I have all of this new equipment um, to uh, produce a live broadcast, and uh, here's what I know. This live stream is being sent to you, and you're getting a certain quality. It is not up to par with the quality that we've been putting up um, and some of our more recent videos. The good quality with the upgraded audio and all that other good stuff is still going to go out on the on the podcast. But we're doing these uh, shows live now, um, as I've been wanting to do for a long time for a couple of reasons. Uh, first and foremost, I wanted to make sure that if you guys wanted to get in touch with me uh, to discuss anything, that you would be able to. And um, so you can interact live on the show. You can type in your questions, and I'll be able to see uh, what it is that you're typing. And, um, matter of fact, I should probably go into uh, that portion of it, shouldn't I? So, here I am, I'm first streaming live. I want to mute myself, and um, I'm going to be the first. If you have comments, questions, or concerns, please feel free to place them here. In that regard, we can participate together. At any rate, um, so there's been some twists and turns in the Alex Murdoch uh, trial this uh, morning. As a matter of fact, I was getting ready ready to uh, produce a show that skewered the prosecution's presentation of the case, and a lot has been has gone on. Matter of fact, the trial's going on right now. Um, I believe they're finishing up their final day of testimony. The prosecution has mentioned that they are going to be. Um, wrapping up their presentation of the case sometime mid-next next week, so I expect Wednesday. And then the defense is going to have the opportunity to present their case in chief, and uh, we'll see what they're going to do. Now, sometimes, sometimes, uh, the defense will choose not to put on any evidence because they don't have uh, the burden of proof, and uh, they just, well, they don't have to. Um, so, matter of fact, in, in uh, some of my cases, uh, I would let the prosecution present all of their evidence and simply cross-examine their witnesses until the, the, once they rested their case, I would tell the judge that uh, the defense also rests. 
And now uh, we go into closing arguments. And so that's not going to be the case um, here. There's no chance that that happens. Um, we still have yet to hear from some key witnesses that we wanted to talk about. So some of the highlights that's going on today, I know that people that have been following the trial have been put to um, boredom uh, with all of this financial stuff, and um, which is okay. It's okay. You learn in law school, in trial advocacy, in the art of trial advocacy, that there is uh, a couple of things that how you want to structure your case. Number one, everybody always remembers the first thing that you say. First impressions matter, right? So you start with your best evidence first. Whatever happens in the middle tends to be kind of drowned out and, you know, by circumstance or whatnot. And so the, the, the middle evidence is meddling and it's going to be more the tedious foundational stuff, which is kind of what the financial evidence represented. And then you close with some of your strongest evidence. And um, because you always remember what somebody first says to you, first impressions, and you remember the last thing that they said to you. Very seldom do you remember uh, the middle portion of whatever it was. And that's true in life, in your conversations, in your work presentations, in uh, class you always remember the first day of school and the last day of school, and whatever happened in the between is kind of a blur, and it's, it's, it's a work to kind of, it's a, it's a mental exercise to try to process it all, but we do, and um, that's what the prosecution has done in this case. So they started with uh, evidence of the guns and the gunshots, and then they got into some of the cell phone evidence, and then they were trying to paint why the prosecutions believes that he was at the kennels at the scene of the murders. And then we got there, and the most explosive piece of evidence was the cell phone footage from Paul's cell phone, where there was three distinguishable voices, and you could hear Paul, you could hear Maggie, and then you could unmistakably hear um, Alex. And uh, a multitude of witnesses got up to testify that that was 100% Alex's voice. There was no doubt in their minds. Uh, despite uh, the defense's attempts to try to uh, trip them up. That didn't really work, not in this case. And so, <clears throat> you know what? Uh, I should probably go into this YouTube studio thing, and forgive me, you know, a live broadcast kind of brings with it a whole, uh, <laughs> a whole new host of problems. And um, I'm trying to navigate through the screen, and my screen is... Uh, freezing on me so if you are trying to communicate I can't really see there we go that's better that is better okay I'm good now I promise um, yeah so this is a little different format than we're used to uh, normally well, what we've been doing for the last few months is we record and we produce and um, the editing was getting to be a bit cumbersome and so now I'm switching back to live streams just because I think if people want to participate, I think they should have an avenue, an avenue to do that. So at any rate, getting back to what happened this morning. So we spent this whole, I did a whole video yesterday attacking the prosecution, accusing them of falling into the defense's trap. Uh, the defense really, really wants the prosecution to talk about all of the financial checks. Uh, yeah, sure, let's go, let's go with another 50 exhibits of checks and uh, talk about how Alex stole them and, you know, put the jury to sleep. That's exactly what they were doing. We spent about a week, week and a half, going over that kind of foundational mundane evidence. And um, as of right now, 
Um, today, this morning, they brought in uh, the housekeeper for the Murdochs and her testimony. You kind of see what the prosecution's plan was. And so, the whole time, there's uh, the biggest pieces of evidence against Alex have been essentially this. There's the video of putting him at the kennels. There is the question of why was he so clean despite fiddling with a couple of bloody dead bodies. Those questions were not resolved or hadn't been resolved. Um, and this morning, we have the housekeeper. And she said some very key things. And we're going to listen to some of the, the more explosive bits of testimony. But this is what I got from it. Uh, let me check in my notes and see what I wrote down. I actually had a chance to listen to some of her testimony this morning. It was a slow court day. I didn't have to go to court this morning. Um, I didn't have too many consults scheduled. And so this is what I have. They got into some of the testimony about the boat case. They did finish with some of that. But it was important to state that there was not an umbrella insurance policy that dealt with uh, covering the amount of money that they were going to have to pay from the boat case because it had already been used in the Satterfield case, which was another case that they got in. And I'm not going to get into all of the crazy details with that because we're done with the finances. Um, it's not even the most important thing. The point was that the general arching point that the prosecution is trying to make is that Alex was coming to a financial head and everything was going to be found out. And there was testimony that the state of the insurance accounts that were not going to cover all of their financial losses, which meant that they were going to have to go into their personal assets to be able to cover some of these losses, which may or may not result in the in the loss of a house, for example, the loss of, the, uh, loss of uh, your estate, um, whatever. Um, that was going to be found out on June 10th, according to the testimony that came out. Significant because it's right around the time of the murders, right? The other thing, the, the biggest piece of evidence that came out with respect to the housekeeper this morning was that there were missing clothes. Now, she gets up there and she testifies that, um, well, she was responsible for their laundry. She cooked meals. Um, she cleaned up. And a significant, as far as that night goes, they all had dinner together. And she had testified that it was usually the case when there was a family dinner that there would be dishes in the sink and they would usually stay there until the next morning. Very seldom, if ever, was there ever an occasion where anybody in that house, anyway, would get to uh, cleaning the dishes or tending to the dishes, which meant, which meant they would have a messy kitchen. I can't talk. A messy kitchen. So then why is it that she goes in the night of the murders where she finds the sink to be completely spotless? And this would have been afterwards. Um, there wasn't any food, although there were, they had a meal. I think she was some kind of hamburger meal that, she, that they were talking about. They had a family dinner, and all of the dishes were clean. Completely unusual. Why? Because, well, it means if somebody went in there clean, who would have done it? Maggie's dead. Uh, Paul was dead. Um, Alex would have been there. Uh, so they had to clean up the dishes. You know, things were spotless. Um, she mentioned uh, that she uh, had uh, seen some clothes of Maggie's laying on the floor, and she mentioned that there appeared to be clothes that Paul was wearing earlier in the day. Matter of fact, there was a video. Do you guys remember? There was a video where um, Paul was with his son, well, was with his dad, Alex, and they were talking about this sunflower tree, and they were laughing about the state of the tree, 
and then Paul was, or not Paul, I keep saying Paul, Alex was wearing this green polo shirt with uh, whatever he was wearing. She testified that that's what she remembered him wearing. But then she goes on to testify that, you know, sometime after everything had happened, uh, he goes and is questioning her about uh, what it was that he, she remembers him wearing. And um, it was after this video had come out that had leaked um, between, you know, the date of the incident and trial. Um, Alex catches wind that there is this video evidence of showing him wearing different clothes than what he was found by the police wearing the night of the murders. And he goes and he approaches her and she talks about how he tried to get her to believe that he was wearing something other than what he was actually wearing, what she remembers him wearing that day. So then you have a state that, and, and by the way, those clothes, those clothes, those specific clothes, green polo shirt and whatever pants that he was wearing that day, have never been found. Nothing. Nothing. They're missing. They're missing. Um, you know what else is missing from the date of that incident? The two murder weapons in connection with the incidents. So you got the murder clothes. Well, I don't want to call them the murder clothes. The clothes that Alex was wearing on the date of the murders, not that he was found with in the police where you see him in, in, interrogated with that white shirt on him with those tan pants or shorts or whatever that was. You see him specifically in this green polo shirt and that pants, whatever that was, nowhere to be found. Nobody's ever found it. Gone. Um, the guns, there was that AR-15, the shotgun, used to uh, commit the murders. Gone. Um, there was testimony from Shelly Smith that it sounded a lot to her that he was trying to make her believe that he was at his mom's house at a different time than what she could remember. And it was odd. Um, so, I don't know. It's a little bit too coincidental to try to... Con There's no direct evidence. I know that. And I get that. But what, what I was calling for yesterday when I was watching this trial was somehow the prosecution has to dumb this case down to a single fact to where you remember... If the glove doesn't fit, then you must acquit. You know, there was that singular piece of evidence, right? And for us, in this case, it was going to be, well, um, if you hear that voice, if you hear Alex's voice on the cell phone, then his version of events is bullshit, right? Well, now you're tying it all together, so here's what we have. We have Alex wearing clothes, the date of the murders, that you could clearly see him on video wearing, and those clothes are no longer to be found. And by the way... There was never a search warrant executed on the house on the date that the evidence was to be um, accumulated, collected. There was never a search warrant executed. I didn't know that. They did not execute a search warrant. And the SLED team that was there to investigate the crime scene completely wiped clean um, certain things. Um, tore up the... Well, not, I don't want to say tore up, but they compromised the crime scene. They did not do a full-on investigation of the house the way that you would expect them to investigate. They didn't. And matter of fact, when they were floating around the house, there was a lot of concern about whether or not they're going to be displacing some of the members of the house, Alex or whoever else was there. And so they did not treat this like a full-on murder scene as if they're going to comb through all of this DNA and all this other stuff and look for evidence of hidden clothes or, or gunshot residue inside the house, maybe. None of that. They didn't do any of that. Uh, they did a cursory uh, once-over, and then that was it. 
in the key pieces of evidence that we were trying, that we've been des so desperately asking uh, the prosecution to produce, would have been the clothes that he would have been wearing at the time of the murders. Well, those are gone. Did he hide them in a blue tarp? Did he dispose of them elsewhere? We don't know. Um, the guns, gone. Did he hide them in the house and then try to take them elsewhere? I don't know. I don't know what level of investigation uh, they, or what level of surveillance they placed on Mr. Murdoch um, after the murders were committed. I just know that there was 10 minutes between the time the murders were committed, uh, 15 minutes if you believe Murdoch's timeline, where he would have had to change out of his clothes, uh, clean up whatever he was going to clean up, um, and, you know, he had plenty of time to do what he had to do to hide some of the more crucial bits of evidence. And he was smart enough uh, to hide um, the most obvious stuff and leave all this question. And so he comes out and he greets the police and he's wearing this bleached white shirt and all this stuff. And he's interrogating and he's pretending to cry and he's doing all of this stuff. If this is only a circumstantial case, okay, well, fine, circumstantial. But how do you win circumstantial cases? By exposing coincidences. And if you have... Uh, multiple coincidences? Well, every single time we come up with a coincidence, um, that multiplies the low probability that this was a 100% a coincidence. No, bullshit. He committed these murders, and he tried to cover it up, and he tried to establish an alibi, got rid of the murder clothes, got rid of the murder weapons, and tried to blame it on the boat case. He tried to blame it on the boat case, um, whatever, finances, uh, the secret neo-Nazi uh, assassin team of Black Panthers that he was trying to, uh, that he made mention of the groundskeeper or whatever. Um, those were the things that were heaviest on his mind at the time that he was being interrogated. And so now um, let's take a look at some of this evidence uh, because today was crazy in court. There was a whole, Dick Hartpoolian had an objection to hearsay because they were asking uh, Gabby, the uh, housekeeper, um, specifically about her impressions about what Maggie's state of mind was. Now, that's obviously hearsay, right? But there exists um, in the uh, hearsay exceptions. Uh, and one exception to hearsay is that the original declarant, the person that said the statement originally, well, they're not available. Why is she not available? Because she's dead. And so she was trying, she was being asked about Maggie's impressions, state of mind, as she perceived them, which is an exception to hearsay. And Dick Hartpoolian lost his shit. He threw papers. He was objecting. Um, they had that. They they cleared the jury. Uh, they cleared the room and um, had this whole discussion. And then the judge gets on in his rebuttal and he says, "Well, look, you're the one that said that this was a, a perfect, crystal clear family, uh, happy, no financial issues, and everybody was all hunky dory. And so this testimony kind of answers that." And um, I'm going to allow it. So now the defense opens the door to all of this other stuff that probably wasn't going to come in because it was a mundane question about whether or not uh, Maggie was aware of some financial stuff. There was the objection. And then um, on uh, the proffer of proof, when they cleared the jury, the judge comes back in there to uh, have a discussion with the attorneys. And he basically states that, look, if they're trying to address your claims, that you said on opening statement that the family was in a good state of mind, that everybody was fine, and everybody was, you know, whatever, um, then they get to ask her about this other specific stuff, such as when uh, the housekeeper was going to clean out Maggie's car, she found her wedding ring in her car, in like some kind of compartment or whatever, because she had taken it off. Um, 
that kind of stuff, which directly contradicts that they had this happy marriage and that it was this happy family and everything was above board. Um, so more of that evidence was going to come in. Um, I don't know where they're at right now with all of that, uh, but I wanted to uh, take a listen to some of this um, crazier testimony. Uh, let me pull some of this up really quick. I haven't lost my place. But let's take a listen to uh, some of uh, Gabby's testimony. I think this is the one where she was going to talk about him approaching her uh, to talk about uh, her his, his clothes that day. And she has certain thoughts about it. But let me uh, pull that up and we're going to play some of this footage. Let's take a listen. I don't know if you could hear that or not. The defendant, Alex Murdoch. Tell you which way to go when you got to the house? He said him and Buster were at Almeida. So I told him I was um, going to Almeida. You know, I wanted to make sure they were okay. And, and um, so I went from my house to Almeida. And then um, when I got ready to leave Almeida, he said, well, when you go to the house, go in the front because there's a lot of sled agents by the kennels. You can't go in that way. And he said, just try to straighten up um, the way Maggie liked everything, you know, in the house. He said, you knew her the best. He said, you know how she likes stuff. So I, uh, I did. I went to the house. So you went to um, I went to Mosa. You went to Almeida to start with? Yes, I did, to check on my buster and Alec. To comfort him? Yes, sir. And um, it's... At his request, you went to Moselle to start cleaning up and getting the house in order? Yes, sir. He said there was going to be people probably stopping by and um, bringing food and, and stuff. He said, I just want the house to look the way Maggie would like for it to look. So I said, okay. And I went to the house. I, I um, Did you have a usual way that you went in to Moselle, entrance-wise? From the house, I would, if I was coming from my house, I would come in on the, I call it the Miley's side. So I would actually enter the property through the kennels. And um, Look at Alex's if I was face. coming from Hampton or if that I was basically you know, his in face the, the, the other direction, today. then I would use the front entrance. But normally I use the kennel entrance coming from my house. When you got to Moselle, we're now in the morning of June 8th, right? Of 2021. Yes, sir. Okay. Did you see anybody in the property before you got to the main house? No, sir. Um, and when you got to the main house, take us right there. Like right now as you're walking in the house, what were your observations? It was hard because I know she wasn't going to be coming back. All right, so this, I feel like this is what the jury's been kind of waiting for this entire time. Tie this back to the murders. And now this is, I keep on calling her Gabby. Her name is Blanca, um, the, the Murdoch's housekeeper. She has, you know, I mean, some real emotions about this family. It's about to come out now. But what you're going to hear her talk about is her description of things, about the way things were. And she knew that house better than anybody. And her recall in this case was, was just remarkable, remarkable. And um, her credibility, I believe, uh, with, with all of this stuff, 
uh, for the jury is probably going to be off the charts. She's been my favorite witness throughout this entire thing. And what she's going to testify to here is basically her being pressured by Alex to remember things differently. Let's take a listen. And I didn't want to move. I didn't want to move her stuff. It was just a weird feeling going through when I walked, when I unlocked the front door to get in. It felt cold. What did you do when you got inside? Um, when I got inside, I, uh, I didn't turn on any lights. I didn't do anything. I, want, I walked through the front door and I went in the kitchen. And uh, I was kind of... I was kind of, when I looked in the kitchen, I kind of got, kind of just stopped in my tracks and I looked at the stove and I, I was kind of, I don't know what, what the word is. When I looked and I noticed the stove that there was no pots on the stove, it was kind of unusual because usually. When this is where she talks about the, uh, I should probably let her tell it, but she's talking about how it's unusual for the kitchen to be so clean and, and well. I'll just let her explain. When they ate dinner, um, when they ate dinner the night before, the pots usually stayed on the on the stove. Very, very seldom would she um, put, you know, certain meals in the refrigerator. A lot of times, it was just left on the on the stove um, until the next day. And um, the pots were not; they were not in the sink, and they were not on the stove. And then, as I walked through, I um, walked. If you walk through the kitchen, like you're going to from the kitchen, if you walk through the kitchen. Um, if you go to the left, there's two uh, freezer and a refrigerator, and the laundry room sat right there to the left. There's a back door to the back porch, and then there's the laundry room door. They're both right there. And as I turned to go to the laundry room, I noticed that there was her pajamas were in the middle of the doorway, um, it, right in the middle, laid neatly in the middle of the doorway going into the laundry room. It was her pajama pants, a pair of underwear, and her, um, her pajama top. Was that unusual? That was very unusual. Um, because she, would, she wouldn't lay her clothes out like that, not in the middle of the door like that. It, it just didn't look right to me. And you took care of the house? Yes. You took care of the clothes? Yes. And I, uh, not to get too personal, but sometimes you can't have it. Were the underwear there with the pajamas unusual? Yes. Why? She didn't, she didn't wear underwear with her pajamas. No underwear with pajamas? That struck no you underclothes with the pajamas. But that struck you as unusual they were there with the pajamas? Yes, sir, because the underwear appeared to be uh, clean, not, not dirty. They, they still had, like, fold marks. And the pots, and I may have just missed it. You said, where would the pots end up? When um, you after I, I looked at the pajamas on the, on the floor, the way that they were set, I turned around and I said, well, I wonder where the pots are. So I, happened to, I opened the refrigerator door, and the pots were sitting inside the refrigerator with lids on them. And I was like, you know. Who did this? Um, I, I don't know at that point, but that was not normal for the pot, the whole pot to be sitting in the fridge. Did you make any other observations uh, in the house, the bathroom, or anywhere else? In the, in the master bathroom um, was um, her clothes were sitting next to the, the tub. It was a small pile of clothes right there next to the tub. 
um, and to by the shower, um, if you walk in the master bedroom, there's a big garden tub, spa-type spa tub, and then right here is the shower, and there's a window. On the floor next to the shower was um, a slight puddle of water, a towel, and a pair of khaki pants. And, in, and then um, as I went to the left to see if there was anything else that was out, small pile, I um, looked in the closet, and in the closet was a white uh, damp towel on the floor, and there was a... Uh, I'm pretty sure the T-shirt was white at one time, but, you know, they get kind of dingy after a few years. But that, it, it appeared that a T-shirt had fallen off of a stack of T-shirts that were on top of the shelf right there in the closet. Um, it was laying on the floor next to the towel. Wait, wait, when you took care of the home, was that, tell us how the clothes were laid out, the shirts, the shorts were, you're saying up on the shelf, or the shirts, how um, In the closet, there was a shelf. Um, there was some shelves, smaller shelves right here, and then there was some long ones. Maggie used to keep her clothes on these, and then there was a shorter one, kind of like little uh, box-looking, you know, up Alex used to keep his clothes, his belts, and stuff in that. Um, and then on top, there was also an area where he kept T-shirts. Um, they were folded, and they were kept on the shelf. You say T-shirts. I don't know what a T-shirt is, but I mean, were they T-shirts like I'm wearing right now? Were they T-shirts with pockets? It was usually they would um, be T-shirts like if they would go, like when you go to a restaurant, and they have like the logo of those type of T-shirts. He, he had a big collection of those. And, and would you put them on the shelf? Yes, sir, I did. Did you iron a T-shirt? Yes, sir, I did. And you, you washed all the clothes? Yes, I did. Did he have a certain place that he kept shorts versus long pants? Yes, sir. When you walk in the master bedroom, there, when you enter the master bedroom, the bed, the bed was right here at the foot of the So in case this is going over your head or, or you're missing it, this is a lady that knows the outline and the, and the laundry habits of these people probably better than them. She knows when things are out of place. She knows when things are missing. And what she's basically saying is that, you know, it looks like he tried to grab a shirt off of a pile and knocked it down. You know, um, it, it looks like uh, um, she, she's explaining, like, why she understands why things were missing. She just has this, I don't want to say photographic recollection, but she is, is very well versed um, in how things worked in the house in terms of the laundry. Very well versed in how things work in terms of the kitchen. And she is... Um, She's producing very effective testimony right now for the prosecution. If you look at Alex's face, he's he's not having a very good day. He's not having a good time. Bed, you had a dresser here and a dresser here. Um, the right dresser on the top drawers were usually his underwear, his socks. The next drawer was his T-shirts. And the bottom drawer were the pajama pants that he would wear or his shorts that he would wear to sleep in. In the left drawer, and one sits on this, this side of the door going into the bathroom, and the other one's right here. On the left dresser, he kept his white t-shirts that he would wear under when he wore a suit he would wear the t-shirts were in one of those drawers and then the other two drawers were shorts um the dressier shorts and then the um the not so dressier shorts you know that so you testified a shirt looked like it had fallen when you saw it this morning yes sir june 8 2021 okay was it still clean yes sir did you put it back yes sir my boss don zelenka just reminded me that the food that you um cooked did you look and see how much was eaten in the pots? No, sir, I did not. Now, you said there was a damp towel. Where was that? In the closet, on the floor. And I know what damp means, but when you touched it, did it feel? It was damp. What did you do? Took it to the laundry room. And you said there were some pants there? Yes, yeah, so there's a pair of khakis by the shower. And what did you do with those? Took them to the laundry room. Did you wash them? Yes, sir.
I had myself on mute. I apologize. There was, um, yeah. So she gets up there. She said that was that portion of the testimony was not where she was being questioned about her, um, remembering Alex's shirt incorrectly. Uh, but she had another portion of there where she was uh, directly questioned. I don't know. Maybe I missed it. Um, but there, that was the first part of the testimony where she's testifying just how things were out of place. It was unusual for things to be cleaned up. You know, there, there was specific laundry missing. Um, and she gives a very credible testimony. But I want you to notice that when she was giving her testimony, there was not any quiver in her voice. I mean, obviously the emotional part, parts, but there was no question. She knew what she was going there to do. Um, the testimony that she gave is about as, as, as good as it gets, honestly. She, she recollected everything perfectly. Uh, she was very sure of what it was that she was saying. Uh, she came out very credible. And even on cross-exam, you know, there wasn't really much to attack her on, although they did try. They did try. Um, but what I wanted to uh, get into was, oh, give me one second here. Let me, let me find, uh, this portion of, uh, testimony. <clears throat> there it is. Okay. So there was that, uh, the, where she talks about a, a weird feeling. This is the one. Okay. So I played the wrong, I didn't play the wrong one. I was going to play the other one, but there was this other shorter version that we were going to play. And this is where she is questioned directly about Alex, about the shirt. And it gives you just kind of this whole creepy vibe. This and, uh, um, between Mr. Johnny Parker and his brother, listen. Randy, there's a small two bedroom house right there. And that's where all his belongings at the time went. And where is that located? In Hampton. Okay. Hampton. And who furnished this little house with clothes and toiletries and made sure stuff was there? I did. Okay. And who was Alex Murdoch staying there with when he stayed there, if anybody? He never stayed there. He would just go and get his clothing and eat whatever, you know, if he would have a snack or something. He wasn't really eating. I said if that was a shirt he was wearing. Video, And he said, you remember the shirt I was wearing that Vinny Vine? And who was Alex Murdoch? Yeah, this is it. Okay, this is exactly what I was looking for. So this moment of trial, I'm sitting here and I'm listening to this like, holy shit. So, all right, it's, it was bad because Shelly Smith... It kind of got lost in the shuffle because she testified that she was pretty sure about what time uh, Alex had visited the house that day because there was a TV show on and it kind of jived with that. But it was weird that he's trying to convince her that it was some other time, um, you know, and that kind of got sw swept under the rug. But this portion of it, you know, shows Alex going to another potential um, witness in this case. And this is, mind you, after that video footage of him um, fiddling, fiddling around with the tree. Uh, with uh, with Paul, had he found out about it. And now he's going to pressure, um, her name is not Gabby, her name is Blanca. I apologize. I keep on, uh, never mind. But he's going to pressure her about the shirt that he was wearing that day. And um, let's uh, let's take a listen. Staying there with when he stayed there, if anybody. He never stayed there. He would just go and get his clothing and eat whatever, you know, if he would have a snack or something. He wasn't really eating. Well, during the month of August, do you remember him having a conversation with you about a shirt? Yes, sir. Did you find that to be unusual? Yes, sir. Okay. Tell them what the conversation was and why you found it unusual. Please. Um, he, he walked in um, to the little house, and I was, almost, I was getting ready to leave. And um, he said, B, I need to talk to you. And uh, he said, come here, sit down. So I went in the living room. I sat down, and he was pacing back and forth in the, in the living room. And he said, I got a bad feeling. He said, I got a bad feeling. He said, something's not right. And then he said, um, he said, well, you know, um, there's a, um, a video. There was a video that was out. I hadn't seen a video. And he said, you remember the shirt I was wearing, that Vinnie Vine shirt? Those were, that's what he said to me. And uh, 
in my mind I was saying I don't remember a Vinnie Vines shirt. It was the polo shirt. But I didn't mention, he said, well, you know what, I was wearing that shirt, he said, um, you know, in the, um, that day. And still, I, I was just, I didn't say anything, but I was kind of thrown back because I don't remember that. I don't remember him wearing that shirt that day. I was trying to guess When he left. I know what shirt he was wearing because I fixed the collar, and the collar's a different material. Yeah, I don't know what a Vinnie Vine shirt is. What was going on. But when he left that day, was he wearing a Vinnie Vine shirt? Or was he wearing the collar you've described? It was a polo shirt. Polo shirt. Just using your common sense that it appeared to you he was trying to take you. Objection. Say I was wearing the shirt. Objection is sustained. That's the form of the question. How, how did you take that conversation? I felt like he was... I felt like I felt confused at first and then I know what he was wearing the day he left the house and I was basically confused I didn't really know whether he was trying to get me to say that that shirt exactly if, I was, if I was to be asked that if that was a shirt he was wearing the day only do you recognize these and do they relate to your testimony without saying what they are yes okay. on September 4th of 2021 did you have a conversation with defendant Alex Murdoch I did okay and what did he ask you to do he asked me to um, send him copies send him a photo of the insurance cards and do you know what day of the week that was I'll go back here so you can talk. I'm sorry. I, I don't remember the, the day. All I know is it's on, it's on my phone. He asked you to send him a copy of his medical card? Oh, it was on a Saturday morning because the next day was my daughter's birthday. That early that morning when he called me, he, he asked me um, when I sent him the the picture of the plastic insurance card um, he said no I need the cardboard one well the cardboard one was in Maggie's purse um, it wasn't in the area where I usually kept the cards in the cabinet so I told him I said it's in Maggie's purse he said well go ahead and, and get the um, get the cards and send me a picture of them and um, I asked him if he was okay and he said um, well, I'm just getting some routine exams done, he said, and I need the number so I could go ahead and schedule these appointments. And it was a Saturday because I was um, I was thinking, where's he going to go to get lab, oh, you know, uh, appointments done on a Saturday? Um, but I didn't say anything. I made I went and I took pictures and I sent him all the copies of the cards that I found. John, we'd offer state 455 and 457.
First of all, we obviously he consulted with me about this as he walked up to me a moment ago. I don't quite understand the relevance. Um, why him asking for? You want to tell me? Talking to him. I'm, not. I'm sorry. I'm just if he would just consult with me for a moment and tell me what the relevance is. But he hadn't told me. With your permission. Yes, sir. What previous objection? You the, said the previous objection. I apologize. I'm just so used to saying that. I apologize. I had no previous made objection to this document concerning this issue. I apologize. Yeah. Yeah, the question was 455. I'll stand right here, okay? Were you texting with Alex Murnau about sending these cards? All right, with that. Uh, where they were going with that was there was some insinuation that, you know, he was trying to pull up uh, this uh, this fraud scheme with the insurance stuff. Um, but the, the most important stuff with her, with her testimony, is just he's directly going to her and trying to tamper with her memory, trying to t which is essentially the same as trying to tamper with her testimony as she's now testifying on the stand. But she remembers uh, point blank uh, what he was wearing on that date. And she had a good idea of where things were supposed to go. And she testifies that things were missing. Not only that, but as far as uh, what was out of sorts, the kitchen was out of sorts because the kitchen was clean. And so if you have this idea, you have a, a family that doesn't normally clean up, but on that day, Oh, things were cleaned up. There's no dishes in the sink. There's no food in the sink. Not only that, but clothes had gone missing, and it just happened to be the same clothes that he was wearing the day where hours before um, his son was murdered. Um, you have him going to try to pressure Shelly Smith into believing, making her to believe uh, that she or he was there on at different times than she had previously stated, um, trying to call into question her testimony. Uh, you have a guy that's trying to... He's not just trying to manipulate a scene. He's not just trying to manufacture an alibi. He's not just trying to uh, make up evidence, but he's trying to rankle the memories of the, the, the biggest witnesses that were in this case, and Gabby wasn't having any of it. <clears throat> and you have her basically stating that as he's saying this, and she's probably being polite and nodding, yes, and yes, sir, and, and all of that. But she gets up here on the stands. I, I, I felt like he was trying to get me to remember something that what I actually saw. He was wearing that green polo shirt, the same one that was in the video. And in, I don't know what portion of the, uh, the evidence was, but they actually did play the video. I don't know if they published it for Law and Crime Network. But yeah, it was the same cell phone video um, or Snapchat video or whatever it was where you see um, very clearly Alex and he's uh, fiddling with that sunflower tree and him and Paul are having a good laugh about it. And that was uh, one of the videos in the opening statement that the defense had pointed out where, you know, why would he uh, murder his son? Look at what a good relationship they have. And then you hear him on the cell phone video of Paul, and then minutes later he's shooting him in the face with a shotgun. I don't know. I got to tell you with this case with uh, Alex Murdoch, um, let me see if there was any, uh, anything that I'm missing in terms of uh, the most important uh, evidence here. Let me get this out of here. Yes, I was. Okay. And that's the text, and is that the... My opinion right now with where we're at in the Murdoch's case is um, I'm less upset with the prosecution's presentation of evidence because I feel like they're now starting to tie it together. Did they spend too much time? Uh, 
on the financial evidence, yeah, uh, maybe, maybe it's it was it was really um, tough getting through a full week of uh, identifying. Uh, do you recognize this check? Yeah, what happened with the check? Uh, Alex stole it, and you know, doing that over and over and over again for days. Um, but such as the nature of trial, everything turns on a single piece of testimony. And here you get this lady coming in there to talk about uh, that there was this clothes that went missing and how he tried to pressure her into um, remembering something different, uh, which in where I'm from, they call that tampering with witness testimony. And so uh, what is my opinion on the case? I think that the number of coincidences in this case are making it significantly easier to um, for the defense to display reasonable doubt. The doubt has to be reasonable. If you think about it in terms of percentages, um, is there a 50% chance that it could have been um, somebody else? Sure, that's reasonable doubt. What about if it's a 30% chance that uh, it could have been somebody else other than Alex? Yeah, I think it's reasonable to doubt that. What about 10%? Okay, I mean, less likely, less likely, but I guess it's reasonable with a 10% chance that somebody other than Alex committed the murders. Okay, what if it's a 1% chance? Okay, well, that's not really reasonable anymore, is it? Maybe, I guess, one out of 100 times. What if it's a 0.25% chance, you know? And what you're having here, my memory from college statistics is basically that what's the probability... Um, of flipping a coin, you know, it's 50-50. Well, what, if, what is the probability of that coin hitting heads five times in a row? And it's something like, uh, I don't know, some small percentage. And that's kind of what we have here. What are the chances that the very set of clothes that Alex was wearing on the day of the murders prior to him changing into that white T-shirt and those beige pants or whatever that was, what are the odds that that goes missing? I don't know. Um, kind of weird. Why would it be missing at all? All of his other clothes are there? I guess so. Well, so then what's the odds? I don't know. Let's put it at 5%. 5% chance. What are the odds on that very same day that his clothes goes missing that you just said was a 5%? I'm making up testimony. I know that. But for the purposes of my argument, um, what are the odds that they would have also cleaned up the kitchen on that night and it would be spick and span um, when they never do that? Um, I don't know. I don't know. How often out of a meal, out of a hundred meals, how often do they clean the dishes? That would give the number for the percentage. And what are the odds that it happens on the same day that his clothes goes missing? I don't know. But I think we're getting under 1% probability. Now, add into all of that, what are the chances that those two things would happen? And then you would have, um, uh, I lost the point that I was making. I was going somewhere with this. Um, oh, the guns. What are the odds that those two things would happen and then the guns would also go missing that just so happened to be uh, connected to the murder by way of expelled shells? The same ammunition from the shotgun was found all over the place, and those were the same shells that were found at the murder scene. The same ammunition from the AR-15 that were found all over that house at the gun range was found at the scene. What are the odds that those are the two specific guns that just so happened to go missing. Okay, so we're somewhere significantly less than 1% at this point. We're probably under a tenth of a percent. Okay, and what are the odds that you say that you went to go visit your mom and you went to go do all of this stuff to check up on her at these specific times? What are the chances that the atmospheric pressures would somehow give a false reading on the GPS uh, evidence that was presented early in this trial 
placing you at the exact place where the murders took place. All of those things together, it's just a bridge too far. It's just, it, there's, there's no way all of those things happen at the same time. And so what do you have? You have less than one one hundredth of a percent chance that the murders were committed by anybody other than Alex Murdoch. Because for all of those things to have occurred at the same time, given the probabilities, for all those things would have taken an act of God. And where those are the odds, you don't have reasonable doubt. And that's really the prosecution's case. Now, they, they went through all of the financial stuff to talk about um, motive and all of this stuff. And the motive is pretty simple. He was uh, in the red in a very severe way. And he was about to get found out that the uh, insurance was not going to cover, um, you know, certain things. He was about to lose his entire estate, um, you know, whatever was in his 401k, whatever was in his retirement accounts, whatever assets he'd uh, accumulated over the course of his law career. Um, all of this was coming to a head. This castle that he has built for his family is about to go up in flames because of his bad doing. And so what was the motive? He didn't want to be exposed. What's more, you add in that into that the prospects of a divorce. And I don't know much about Georgia family law, but I know a shit ton about California family law. And if Maggie didn't know about what he was doing and his actions exhausted the family assets, which would have been community assets, assuming that uh, South Carolina is a community property state, whether or not it is, I have no idea. I'm literally speculating from a California perspective, so don't quote me on this, but assuming that the marital assets were being drained because of Alex Murdoch's financial crimes, what we call that in family law is a breach of fiduciary duty. Spouses owe the utmost of uh, trust and duty and care to each other. They call it a fiduciary duty. And if you're doing something that's draining the assets or do something that subjects the entire community estate uh, to be pilfered by the government because you're out here robbing people from your law firm and robbing people from uh, your clients and, and robbing money from, you know, this and that, well, then you have to reimburse the community. And so Maggie might not have been on the hook. She might have been he might have been indebted to Maggie for the rest of his life. And so in order to avoid that pitfall, and him being an, an attorney would understand that, that's the motive for why he wanted to kill Maggie. Why did he want to kill Paul? It's a little, difficult. It's a little more difficult to connect the dots. And so I'm not going to try. If I'm the prosecution and they're not really, I mean, they spent a whole week and a half on what I suspect is going to be their evidence of motive. Um, there is certainly the, 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 the motive there uh, to kill Maggie. Why does Paul get in, in, in involved? Because he doesn't want to be exposed by his family, because he doesn't want to be looked at a certain way. I had my murder-suicide um, theory from the very beginning of this trial uh, that, you know what, I'm not, if I'm going down, I'm taking everybody with me. I don't want my family remembering me as this piece-of-shit guy that was stealing from all of these innocent folks. And so maybe that was uh, what he wanted to do. But, well... Um, he did, but he didn't turn the gun on himself, which means it was a little more sinister than that. He wanted to get rid of those issues and continue on living and gain the sympathy of the nation as they found out that he, well, the first time that I heard about Alex Murdoch was when he was trying to defraud the insurance companies. That's the first 
time I ever heard about him. And then, you know, sometime later, we hear about this murder of his wife and his son. Um, and so that was our introduction. And, you know, he's trying to gain the sympathy of the nation to distract from his financial crimes. I don't know. Does it make logical sense? I'm not sure. But, you know, he wasn't really in a logical situation. He was in a very extreme amount of debt and everything was about to crumble. This empire that he had built was about to crumble. And this is where we're at. So if I check my internal scorecard about where we are at with this case, um, who is winning, who's losing. I'll tell you what, uh, the prosecution has made up a lot of ground in this case. I've heard a lot of legal prognosticators out there saying, I don't know, the prosecution's really connecting the, not connect, connecting the dots for me, but it's all kind of starting to fall into place now. And this testimony from, uh, not Gabby, Blanca, this testimony from Blanca paints for me a picture of a man that had a very specific plan uh, that was at its wits end that realized his marriage was ending. He had some kind of a relationship with Paul. I don't know, but he was about to get found out about his financial crimes. The insurance policies that he had taken out had already been exhausted because of the Satterfield case. And all of this was going out the window. His estate was going to crumble. And in the divorce case, likely he was going to be found guilty of breach of fiduciary duty for his financial crimes. And he was going to be in debt which for what would have been his ex-wife for the rest of his life. He would have never paid off those debts if that's the case. The value of that estate, let's just say that his estate was worth $10 million. That means her community share would have been $5 million. Well, guess what? If you breach a fiduciary duty and you commit all those financial crimes, uh, you don't get your community share. Well, in California, you don't. So she would have got 100% of the estate because he squandered it all. So he's in debt to his wife. He's probably going to prison anyway for the financial crimes. I don't know if he ever factored that in. There's no way he's getting off. 99 plus crimes of financial crimes that still has yet to trial to go to trial. That's going to be tried by Creighton Waters. And um, the, the penalties for that, I mean, he could spend the rest of his life in jail despite without the murder case, honestly. So whatever happens here, let's say they find him, let's say they find him not guilty. He's still not getting out of jail. He's going to be in jail. He's still a flight risk because he is facing life in prison if they convict him on all 99 counts. And just judging um, on uh, the, uh, what am I looking at right now? I have the camera not even pointed. Do I have the camera on me? I don't know what I was looking at. I don't know what happened there. I got totally distracted. I'm not sure what that was. Um, where was it? Oh, if they find him guilty of all of his financial crimes, um, he's going to be going to jail uh, regardless. And he's never going to see the light of day. So this guy was doomed from the start. He had every reason to just say, you know what? My hand has been played here on earth and I'm just going to go out with a bang. And, um, but he tried to do it in a way that still try to, you know, charm his way out. He used that South Carolina charm, that good old boys. Oh, I don't know what all this stuff is. I don't know about GPS. I don't know about cell phones or text messages or anything. I love my wife who wasn't even wearing her wedding ring anymore because she was getting ready to divorce him. And then she was going to find out about what she thought was in her estate, what she thought was in her retirement accounts or in his retirement accounts that she was going to benefit from. Well, she don't even have that because it's gone because dipshit Alex went and stole $8 million from his clients. And that's it. And that's all. That is the prosecution's case. He goes there. That's what he's facing. He shoots his son. He shoots his wife. He tries to clean it up. He, try, he gets rid of the clothes, obviously, because the sled team never found the clothes. But it was the only bit of clothes. It's not just that they didn't find the clothes. 
They didn't find a lot of things, right? But they specifically didn't find those clothes and what are the odds, right? They specifically didn't find those two guns and what are the odds? And he, then he, they, you have now this new testimony uh, from Blanca that he tried to manipulate her memory so that she t- would testify incorrectly or be less sure of the testimony that she would give, which would lose her credibility with the jury if she came in and said that. Now, that didn't work because she came in and testified, um, you know, like a champ. And, and so Alex Murdoch, um, I got to believe there was this whole moment in court where um, the defense, uh, Dick Partpootlian, uh, he objected to uh, what was going on. There was a, some bit of testimony that was going to come in, and he made this huge objection, and he's throwing papers, and he, he's um, uh, yelling at the judge, and, you know, the judge clears the entire room, and, you know, everybody settles back down, and then the judge basically said, hey, look, you're the one that said that he had the perfect idyllic life, and this testimony is just kind of going counter to that, and that's entirely proper. I'm letting it in. And what he just did by that, by raising that entire objection, in front of the jury, and the way that he did is open his door to much, much more of all this stuff. Now, how much farther they go with all of this, I don't know, because the prosecution said that they're going to be done within a, a few days, so this might last until Wednesday. Um, <clears throat> I'm not sure uh, what is coming, but I can tell you this. Um, if you believe in trial advocacy and you believe in the art of trial, then you believe in the... Uh, in the strategy of primacy and recency. And whatever we've heard so far is going to predictably uh, pale in comparison to what's coming uh, Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday. And if that's not the case, then the prosecution isn't doing it right. But right now, I'm giving them some points back. I was getting ready to take it away, uh, but they're, 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 they've actually, I'm not going to say they've done a masterful job because there's not very much that's been masterful in this case do I think they fell into the trap that the defense laid for them to try to get knee deep in all of this um, financial evidence? Yeah, I think they did. But I think that this circumstantial evidence is so strong and it's so easy for the jury to connect the dots. All they got to do is clean this up in their closing argument and then they have it. But they got to focus on, because of the circumstantial nature of this case, they have to focus on <clears throat> how improbable it is that all of these things are true at once that those specific clothes were missing, that those specific guns were missing, that the cell phone data, that the cell phone, the voices on the cell phone, him trying to go pressure Shelly Smith and say, no, I wasn't there at whenever I was here at this time, him going to, uh, to Blanca to try to pressure her. Don't you remember when I was wearing that other shirt and not this green one that I'm here in the video? Um, all of that is starting to come to a head and it's just becoming a little bit too much to overcome. Now, defense, the defense still gets to present a case. Is Alex Murdoch going to get on the stand to testify? There's not a freaking chance in hell. There's no way that's happening. Um, <coughs> the, uh, the, the witness that I've been wanting to hear from the most, aside from, I didn't know that we were going to hear from the, the, the housekeeper in this case, uh, but here she is. But that would have been one of them. Um, and man, did she perform for the prosecution. Um, but it's uh, Alex's best friend, the one that has come out and, and, and given interviews on television uh, detailing the fraud scheme that Alex had uh, perpetrated, basically telling his best friend um, that he wanted him to shoot him in the face so that his family could collect insurance money. I still want to get, for my own curiosity, to the bottom of that. What was that all about? Because for me, uh, the defense's best argument is, why would he kill Paul? He's literally trying to get some insurance money for him. 
like to the tune of $10 million. I believe the answer to that after hearing all of the financial stuff is probably because it was going to offset some of the cost of the money that he owed that $10 million. Maybe he was going to creatively put it in a trust and use some of the interest to try to pay back some of the debts in an attempt to try to uh, leave his family with something or, you know, failed suicide. I don't know. I got to get more details about that. Um, But maybe it was his Walter White way of going out on his shield, uh, knowing that this financial storm was coming and finding a way to leave them whole. But it wasn't going to work out, so we killed him instead. Maybe that's where we're going with this. I don't know. So that's where we're at with Alex Murdoch uh, on today, February 10th. It's already February 10th, Jesus Christ. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think? Is he guilty? Is he innocent? Um, once again, I am seeing, uh, what am I seeing on my screen? I don't know if you guys are seeing that, but I'm seeing weird stuff. Do you guys see a video, a law and crime video playing anywhere in the background? I don't know what I'm looking Oh, I see what I did. Never mind. I know what I did. Okay. Let's talk about Lindy, Lindsay Clancy. Lindsay Clancy. Um, I had a whole talk with my wife about this last night. Um, I have small children. Um, I have one big child. She's 16. Um, And I have um, my three-year-old about to be four, and I have a two-year-old who's about to be three. And, well, I remember what it was like when they were newborns. And I remember the whole discussion that I had with doctors about postpartum depression, about how it was a real thing. And um, did my wife experience uh, bouts of that? I mean, not to the extreme of Lindsay Clancy, but yeah, she was certainly um, in a mood. I mean, her, her hormones were doing all kinds of crazy stuff, as you can imagine, being a, a nursing mother. And, and she certainly had her moments. But um, everything that I educated myself about postpartum depression at the time, uh, just it, it allowed me to um, make sure that I took it seriously. So here's this lady, Lindsay, and I just produced a video yesterday. They kind of ran through the timeline. I'll briefly go through it again. Um, so she had a five-year-old and a three-year-old and an eight-month-old baby. She had been going into, she was doing these uh, journalistic timeline um, on her phone. Uh, I guess she had an iPad and she would use the notepad feature or whatever to write down her notes. And some of the stuff that she was saying was that she was struggling uh, with these children. And she was resentful towards the older children, the five and the three-year-old, because she wasn't being able to give the full attention to her infant baby, the eight-month-old. And um, what disturbs me about that case the most is the fact that she went to doctors. Um, She went to um, her husband, and they had talked about it, and they had put her on medications. Um, I believe the number was she was prescribed 12 different medications, 12 different medications, And um, obviously, her defense team is playing up the fact that, well, she is uh, obviously not of sound mind. And so she can't stand trial, you know, um, innocent because of insanity or not guilty because reasons of insanity. And the prosecution is pushing back. But, yeah, she was completely a normal person. And I, I guess my pushback to the prosecution would be, and I'm not trying to defend Lindsay. I'm not her defense attorney. But if they're going with she was behaving normally. At the doctor's office, the morning of the day that she murdered her children, that's not going to be enough because there's plenty of psychopaths out there. There's plenty of schizophrenic people out there. 
that look uh, completely normal while they're hearing voices in their head telling them to do nefarious things. Now, I'm not a psychologist, and it's not within my purview to get into all of the particulars about that, but as a common-sense person, a prospective juror in this case, um, as many of you are, um, who live out in Massachusetts, uh, it is not outside of the realm of possibility to appear completely 100% normal to friends, family, doctors, teachers, pediatricians, CVS pharmacists, CVS managers, um, and be completely off your rocker. But that's what the prosecution is focusing on. I mean, it's not just that. There's also other stuff, as in she was in her hospital room, um, writing on a whiteboard, wondering whether or not she uh, needed an attorney. I'm not sure if she's paralyzed or not. I read somewhere that she may be paralyzed or incapacitated. Um, I haven't confirmed that, so I'm not making that claim. I'm just wondering what was her mobility to be able to get to a whiteboard um, and ask. Oh, they probably handed her something, right? Um, So here's what happened. So the morning of, this would have been January 24th of this year, uh, literally a couple weeks ago, she takes her five-year-old daughter, Cora, to a doctor's appointment with the pediatrician. And this would have been in the morning, um, specific time, I don't know, I'm guessing probably around noon. It was a cold, snowy day over there in Massachusetts. And she goes into the doctor's office, interacts with the secretary. She takes her five-year-old to her appointment without incident, and, and everything was fine. And um, the receptionist didn't tip, tip off anybody. Uh, the doctor didn't think that anything was out of sorts. Uh, I assume, uh, based on her search for Miralax, that they had some discussions about uh, this five-year-old's uh, bowel movements or something. I don't know. Um, but probably gave her instructions to go get some Miralax or something like that and maybe wrote her a prescription. Doesn't sound like it because that's an over-the-counter drug. Um, but... Yeah, she left without incident, and then she goes home around 4 o'clock, and she is uh, greeted by her 3-year-old, and they go outside to play in the backyard, and they're they're making snowmen. She wasn't with, interestingly, according to the prosecution, the 8-month-old, so I wonder if the 8-month-old was probably, like, asleep or napping or with his dad in the basement. Dad was working from home, and um, maybe they had, like, a little bassinet in there, and he had the kind of job where he could take frequent breaks um, and look after the eight-month-old. So she was responsible for the five-year-old and the three-year-old, and they're all over there having a good time building snowmen. She's sending pictures of them playing out in the backyard to her mom, um, and she's sending text messages to her husband, same kinds of pictures. <clears throat> and then uh, she starts searching on her cell phone for um, mapping out the distance between her home and this restaurant called 3 V. 3V was some takeout restaurant out in Plymouth, Massachusetts. My voice is going a little bit hoarse. I'm still recovering from whatever's going on with my voice. She announces to her husband that she's not cooking that night, that this was a takeout kind of night, and that she was going to go to this 3V restaurant to order takeout. And what did he want for dinner? Um, He says, ah... I'm going to have the, um, what did he say? It was the pork belly and scallop risotto. And she said, okay, well, I'm going to have the Mediterranean Power Bowl, which sounds, I don't know if that sounds delicious or not, the way that I'm imagining it, but the way that it actually is, it might have been been something else, I don't know. But um, that was the plans. She maps out on her cell phone the distance from her house to the 3V restaurant to figure out how much time it would take 
for her husband to leave and come back. But she didn't just send him to the restaurant. She sent him to the CVS. Curious. What's curious to me is if she had this plan to murder her children, then why go through the extra trouble of uh, calling the manager to verify whether or not they had the Miralax medication? That puzzles me the most. I have the most questions about that because that's essentially what she did. She calls the CVS, speaks to a manager, and, uh, oh, Psychology Noir, Dr. Lund reminds me of the Yates case. Yeah, as I was going to say, Amanda Yates, exactly. The Yates case, it's exactly what this reminds me of. I don't remember the whole particulars about the Yates, but that was another one. I think she she didn't strangle her children. She um, uh, she drowned her children, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Um, is that the same lady that had uh, that, that was already executed from the death penalty and all that kind of stuff? I don't remember if, that, if that's the same person I'm thinking of. But yeah, Amanda Yates was uh, somebody that drowned her children. But this is very similar to that. So what troubles me about this case is this. So she's behaving and functioning normal. Her husband goes out to talk about, uh, goes on to talk about how she was having one of her best days. She had just been in a hospital on January 1st to see about her postpartum depression and some of the things that she was experiencing and, and, and stating to the doctors. She was prescribed 12 medications, but if you're prescribed 12 medications, I don't understand how that equals a clean bill of health. The prosecution stated that she was given a clean bill of health, no mental illness or, or whatnot. But if you have a clean bill, then what's the medications for? So that's something that we're going to have to get to the bottom of. Um, the other thing is, you know, she was re- she spent five days in the hospital, five days in a hospital, released on the 5th, and then she's starting to do better. Um, and for her husband to make the remark that, you know, her taking her daughter to the pediatrician and then, you know, ordering food, uh, playing in the backyard, the fact that he even had a remark that that was one of her best days, she was probably going through something very, um, very real to her. But here's my point. She makes the phone call to the CVS, speaks with the manager, asks about whether or not they have Miralax. The manager says, no, we don't have that specific form of medication, but we have these alternatives. And then she sends her husband to the CVS and then to the 3V. My question is, the prosecution is contending that this was all in, uh, uh, this was all in a uh, scheme to make sure that husband was gone for long enough to commit the acts that she did and then, you know, whatever. Um, it just leads me to believe that maybe that wasn't the case until she was left alone with the children. Maybe she'd been hearing voices all of that time and then, you know, decided to act upon them when she had a chance because when he left to go to the CVS, he was making a purchase. Um, They had texted back and forth or they had a phone call exchanged back and forth at 533 calls her. She calls him back at 534. He says that she sounds normal. And then um, he makes the... uh, I guess he makes the purchase and he, he said that she sounded normal, but it sounded like she was in the middle of something. So at what point did she form the intent that she was going to um, decide to murder her children? I don't know, but around 610, uh, he arrives back to the house and uh, everybody is silent, dead silence at the house. And um, he goes and calls his wife. No answer. He goes up to the second floor 
of the house and tries to, you know, the door is locked for whatever. So he gets in somehow, either by breaking it open or some other way. Maybe he had a key. I don't know. I would have broke down the door. And um, he finds blood on the floor in front of a full-length mirror. There is a window wide open. He looks down and he sees his wife laying there in the snow, rushes down to her aid, and uh, she's injured. She's got cuts on her wrists. She has cuts on her throats, and she has some broken bones. She had broken some, a couple of ribs, and I want to say that she broke some bones in her back. And again, I don't know if she's currently paralyzed or not, but she's certainly in a, in a, uh, in a hospital bed. And there is a restraint around her neck, which leads me to believe that she probably is either purposely being prevented from moving or she just can't because she's paralyzed. I don't know. Um, but he goes to check on her and she was able to say enough that I try to kill myself by jumping out of a window. He asked her where the kids were. She just sat in the basement. She didn't say anything other than in the basement. And then he calls the paramedics, 911, and lets them know what's happening. And they got there fairly, very quickly, according to uh, the prosecutor. And um, he tells EMS, please stay with my wife. I got to go find my kids. Um, no idea that they're gone at this point. So he goes into the basement and he's shouting out, guys, guys, I haven't heard the 911 call. But the prosecutor said that all of this was picked up on the 911 call. And then he um, discovers their lifeless bodies there on the ground. And at that point, it's like uh, he's, he's screaming in agony and he's begging them to breathe, breathe, breathe. Um, the five-year-old and the three-year-old were already dead. They were pronounced dead. They were taken to the hospital. They were pronounced dead on arrival. The eight-month-old, I believe they, they, they uh, were able to restart his pulse briefly. And... Um, he was brain dead, but they had him on life support for, for a couple of days before he ended up passing away. I found out today um, there was a GoFundMe uh, for the family that has apparently already uh, cracked a million dollars, which I uh, was unable to confirm uh, today out of all the stuff. But if that's true, um, I'm not sure how I feel about that. A little distasteful. Um, but... <clears throat> Getting back to uh, the husband, so he finds this, uh, his children are gone, he's screaming out, my wife killed the kids and all of this stuff, and now he's just left to pick up the pieces. And so the defense is claiming that she was in a zombie-like state, she was on all of these medications, obviously not in her right mind, they're trying to claim that she's guilty, or not guilty by reason of insanity, you know, it's a plea. Um, prosecution is pushing back on that. So we're going to be following that trial. I have a lot of questions. I have a lot of questions. We're still at the very, very early stages of everything. I got to take a look at the discovery. I got to see uh, some of the pretrial motions that are going on. Um, but postpartum depression is a, uh, it's a very real condition. Um, my wife had it to a small degree, but certainly not to the point where she's psychotic and, you know, um, hearing voices the way that Lindsay um, appears. Um, let's see, Psychola reminds me of the, yeah, the Yates case, right? Being, Yates behaving very strangely, though. I remember hearing she was mute or something. I don't remember if she was mute. I want to say, I want to say that Yates, <clears throat> I, I want to say that I remember her giving interviews while she was in prison and she didn't seem, I mean, she seemed pretty articulate to me. I mean, I don't know if I'm thinking about somebody else. Um, that's not to make any particular claim about the case that there was a very significant pattern of evidence. Psycho yeah. And that's, that's kind of, okay. So my biggest question with this, with the whole thing is if it was her intent to kill the children all along, 
The only thing that sticks out to me that wouldn't make any sense whatsoever is the phone call to the CVS manager because you don't have to, you're not trying to establish an alibi if you're going to kill yourself. If that was her plan all, all along, then who cares, right? You're going to be gone from this earth anyway. But she's calling the CVS manager and um, specifically asking about the medication. So my question really becomes, at what point did she form the thought process that she was going to kill the children? Now, very clearly, back in October of 2022, um, she had made claims about or expressed a desire to kill her, not kill her children, but to harm her children. She was talking about this back in October. Um, and the three months after that, you know, obviously it got significantly worse to the degree that she was being hospitalized for five days and placed on 12 different medications. I'm interested in what specific medications because you don't get prescribed something unless you're diagnosed with something. So the prosecution's claim that she was giving a clean bill of health um, doesn't hold a lot of weight for me. Um, the question is not whether or not she did it. The question is not, it, it really is, did she do this because she was prompted by a psychosis that drill, drove her insane to do these things? Or did she form the intent to do it despite being of sound mind? Two completely different things. Um yeah, no, I'm, I'm very interested in this case, um, Psychology Noir, yeah, with Dr. Lund. I'm going to have to check out your show. I'm very interested in that. But um, yeah, no, this case is fascinating to me on multiple levels. Um, I'm absolutely going to be following it. Um, if for no other reason, then there's a long history um, in the judicial system with pleas of insanity and whether or not they work or not. I can tell you how they work in California. I mean, you could... The way they work in general is, is like this. In order to be guilty of first-degree murder, you have to form the requisite intent to commit the murder, right? You have to have a malice in your heart uh, um, to co commit a murder with malice aforethought. In the Alex Murdoch case, uh, the prosecutor, Creighton Waters, described it as having evil in your heart, evil intent. Um, and the defense is going to say, well, you can't have evil in your heart or evil intent if you're not in your right mind to begin with. Because my client was possessed. We've seen those kinds of cases uh, before, and they, they really never work out. The only time that I've really seen that specific claim actually work was there was this gentleman that held um, the entire nation. I, I want to say that he lived in Chicago. What was that guy's name? Um, he held a, a, news, a, a real estate guy hostage, and there was this newscast uh, following him around, and he stuck this device um, around his neck that was going to explode or had this trigger, had a shotgun to his head where if somebody did the wrong movement, then the shotgun would go off and blow his head off. And that went on for a couple of days, two, three days. They ended up pulling on this ruse uh, about, look, we will give you a million dollars, but you got to let this guy go. And then they they kind of strung him along for a few days. And then once uh, the hostage was free, obviously they arrested him. Um, but they even went so far as to draw up a plea agreement, say, look, we will, get, we will give you immunity as to these charges and give you a million dollars, but you got to let this guy go. And, um, well, that didn't work out because the judge ruled, well, obviously that was done under arrest and contracts that are made under duress are not legally enforceable. So he didn't get his million dollars. But his, uh, his uh, defense team had argued that he was not guilty by reason of insanity. And um, after a long judicial, I think I want to say a couple of years of litigation, that actually worked. It actually worked. Um, I think he spent a couple of years in prison. 
Um, but he was ultimately released. And um, I want to say that he passed away back in uh, the 90s or something like that. But there was a very famous documentary uh, about that guy. It's the only time documented that I could recall that an insanity defense has actually worked uh, to uh, exonerate people of the charges. Now, I haven't done an exhaustive research as to um, whether or not that's the case or not. But um, from the top of my head, it's the only one that I could think of where an insanity plea uh, was was actually effective. Um, At any rate, family, it's been, I've had a good time with you this evening. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the show. So here's where we're going with this. Um, I got to wrap this up because I've been going for like an hour and a half and I usually only go for an hour, but I'm here by myself. And so there's nobody here to really check me on all of that. Um, but what I'm going to say is this, I finally found uh, the format for uh, this show. So what you're listening to right now <clears throat> is my audio podcast. This podcast gets put up on whatever uh, your, your podcast carrier of choice is. It's uploaded. The audio is clean um, and enriched. What you're hearing right now from the live stream is probably... Uh, well, significantly less. And I know that just because um, I didn't know it before, but when I listen to the live stream audio, it, it really bothers me because I like to, I, I know now how to produce um, good audio on a video. So you'll see my produced videos. I did a short 14 minute timeline of events yesterday on the Lindsay Clancy case. Um, I also did a couple of live streams. Um, the way that I'm going to do this now is uh, I'm going to start our full show, our full podcast. I'm just going to do it like a radio broadcast, fully live, unadulterated, whatever mistakes. I'm not editing anything out. It's just going to be the real deal. Holy field of what I'm presenting to you <clears throat> today. Uh, we talked about Alex Murdoch and Lansing Clancy next week. We're going to talk about, you know, whatever's going on. I'd imagine the Murdoch case is still going to be uh, going on at that time. And we'll have some more to talk about. Maybe they will be in deliberations. Who knows? I don't know how much the defense has, uh, to offer in this case. I predicted a, a six-week trial. We're in the week three at this point. And I'm going to continue to do my narration videos where I explore what factually happened with some of these cases. There's a lot of them. Um, I've done, uh, I done. I did an expose on the uh, Koberger case. Um, I talked a little bit about the Anna Walsh case. Um, and yesterday I talked about the Lindsey Clancy case. And there's going to be a lot of extra stuff coming up. But in the future, in the future, um, I'm going to be producing a lot more content, but our full podcast show is always, always, always going to be done on Fridays. I'm going to start doing them live. Um, For any of you wondering what happened to Eliana, uh, well, she's going through some health stuff right now, and I'm not really at liberty to talk about it, but she wants to be here, but she's uh, a couple of things. She's professionally very busy, um, and she has some other stuff going on. Um, But it's not for any other reason other than that. Um, so I've been doing this uh, by myself uh, for the last couple of weeks now, and it's been going fine. It's been going okay. Um, at any rate, uh, that's all I have for you this week for the Tilted Lawyer podcast. And if you stuck with me for this long, if you listen for this entire hour and a half or however long I've been going for this part, uh, thank you so much. And if you're new to the show and if you're just discovering us, welcome to the family. I look forward to doing many more of these live shows. Um, if you have requests of cases that you want me to do, leave them in the comments or just comment right here in the chat. I'm right here. I can see, I see you, Beeble Knievel. And, uh, well, I didn't see what you read. I literally just looked at it right, right now, but you're talking about suicidal thoughts can be negative side effects. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Um, do these medications even get studied in combination with another? I'm not sure. 
um, that part of it, I would be really interested. I actually know a, uh, a psychologist that prescribes these medications. I have a lot of questions for her. I'll see if I could get her to come on on the show. And thank you so much for your time. I just found you. And thank you for joining me on the live show. This is our first live feed um, where I've actually had uh, invited the audience to participate. And so this is going to continue to grow. Um, but once again, I love you all. Um, it's all I really have for you today. Uh, let me know down in the comments what you want me to come, uh, what you're most interested in, in having me cover next. Um, I will see you all next week. In the meantime, uh, make sure you lock your doors. Make sure you keep um, everybody safe. Make sure that you give uh, your loved ones a hug. You never know what could happen in this crazy world. And I will see you all next week. And uh, bye-bye. Thank you all for listening to the entire podcast. We really do appreciate that. And as always, you can find us on YouTube on the Total Lawyer Podcast YouTube channel or on your podcast carrier of choice. If you feel we've presented anything of value, please leave a five-star rating, like, and subscribe. We always appreciate that kind of thing. And we do look forward to seeing you all again live every Thursday at 3 in the afternoon. We love you all. Take care. Bye-bye.